Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. This podcast is focused on precision ophthalmic delivery from the 2023 POD Partnership Opportunities in Drug Delivery Conference. For more information on the POD Conference, editorial, podcasts, or webcasts, please visit podconference.com. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the session, and I want to thank you all for attending. This is the last session before the close of the day, so I think uh, you must be interested in this topic. And I think the panelists have worked in this area, and it will be very good to hear from them. We would like to keep this a little bit interactive, so feel free to ask questions. Come up and ask questions. And uh, I'll just give you a very brief introduction. I'm Jamin Shah. I'm from Pfizer. And I've worked in uh, ocular ophthalmic delivery for some time, um, some time back. And there have been a lot of advances, but I haven't, I haven't really kept up. So I think it'll be good to hear from panelists. So I'd start off with this uh, idea that uh, as the population is aging, AMD and DME are becoming the major diseases affecting the eye. And you know it's a very uh, serious condition. And I think 20 to 25 years back, it was recognized that we need to treat these conditions. And there was a lot of work done early on trying to deliver drug to back of the eye by different routes of administration. And I think over the last 20, 25 years, there have been a lot of advances. And I think I would like to start this discussion with what are the advances since 20 to 25 years back, where the first question would be, what are the routes of delivery which have become sort of the normal uh, practice nowadays in treating eyes, uh, back of the eye diseases? So, so maybe I can start. My name is Cindy Wu. I'm from Avi um, via Allergan, and I've been in the drug delivery space for over a decade or so. But maybe to really answer that question, I think when you think about it, intravitreal injection, that has become sort of the standard of care, especially for delivery of biologics to the back of the eye. I think with the introduction of Lucentis back in 2006, which is a, a, a fab that can be delivered and treat the, um, for AMD, DME, et cetera, for over a month. And then there's also um, the introduction of ILEA, which is um, something that can be dosed on a bi-monthly basis. I think those are two examples that just has really catapulted um, IVT injections. Hi, everybody. So yeah, maybe I can continue what Cindy was talking about. I'm Saurabh. I am from Johnson & Johnson. And my experience in uh, the field of ocular delivery uh, spans the past um, dozen years or so, where I did spend a lot of time at Regeneron before uh, joining Johnson & Johnson. Um, yeah, so I think uh, in the last couple decades, like Cindy said, I think the intravitreal delivery is now a common practice in, in offices. Uh, and I think with uh, moving into uh, novel modalities, which we've heard a lot of talk about uh, here, uh, we are now exploring actively routes like uh, subretinal, uh, space, right, and also suprachoroidal, although that's not that uh, common right now, but uh, the other thing is uh, delivery uh, mechanisms, right, so I think we've looked at the, the port delivery system for, you know, uh, from Genentech that got recently approved. Um, there's a lot of other players in this area that are trying to sort of modulate that delivery, um, but in addition to ports, I think there's um, uh, assisted delivery um, Options that that are also sort of a, a newer development that I think we should we should look at. Yeah, I'll, I'll close that thought out. Alex McEwen uh, with the Palace Pharmaceuticals. 
Uh, so I'm really on the research side, so developing these new types of platforms and then trying to get them through uh, the animal models, through translation, and trying to figure out how they'll do and perform in human. Um, yes, in terms of intravitreal, it is very run-of-the-mill. Some of these doctors do 70 a day, which is kind of an incredible thing to think about, that directly into the vitreous space over and over again. Uh, so it really is standard care. It's very, it's, it's standard care, it's common practice. It's, it's the way we get drugs into the eye right now. Um, but understanding, and I think a lot of the drug development work around it, and Cindy, you mentioned going from one month to two months to three months with some of the, the newer anti-VEGF agents. It's these people who cannot drive and they have their caregiver and they're, and they're coming back um, month after month after month to get these injections to manage a chronic disease. So I think that's why we're talking about um, precision delivery and these newer technologies and trying to get drugs either to be in there longer or to be more efficacious, because the bar is very high with anti-VEGF agents. They work really well. Um, but trying to understand that there is this real burden on these patients to keep coming back. Uh, so anything we can do, a gene therapy, maybe one treatment and done, um, I think is, is super exciting. So it's part of what we're exploring there. So I think uh, expanding on that area, so as I said, like uh, in the last couple of decades, biologics is sort of like starting to emerge as the new modality for back-of-the-eye diseases, but uh, it started off with the small molecules, the VEGF inhibitors, and what I would like to kind of recap for the audience as to what's the promise for the small molecule, what are the challenges, and are there any suitable approaches for delivery of small molecules to back-of-the-eye? Maybe I can take a stab at that. I think one of the main challenges with small molecules is it has a really short half-life. We're talking of hours compared to biologics, which are in the order of days. And so when you think of it from that perspective, even though it's small, it, you can, um, it helps in terms of its penetration, but the fact that it lasts for such a short period really means that you have to mirror it with some sort of delivery platform. So I think as most of you guys are aware, Ozerdex is a product on the market. It is a biodegradable implant containing dexamethasone. And it allows, um, it's an effective for up to six months with a single injection. So I think that's something that I think really looking forward, you really have to mirror with some, a different delivery type of technology that will keep it. So if you are developing a small molecule, then it is almost imperative that you will have to have a, a dosing duration of six months or longer and that means that implant is probably the preferred. Yeah, so, yeah, so correct. I, mean, I know there's been a lot of work done by a lot of different companies in terms of looking at particles, looking at hydrogel space. But I think in terms of what has been commercialized, we're looking at um, like an implant type. Oh, well, I've not worked in the small molecule space um, at all, but I think within the large molecule, I think one, you know, came across some literature articles a while ago where we were studying um, a full-length antibody versus a fragment versus, you know, the aptamer that, that was being studied. And e even there, I think there were, um, you know, the concept early on was, well, if it's a smaller entity like a fragment, you could dose a lot more because, as we all know, the, they were limited by the volume in the space, right? And, but then at some point, you start to hit that wall where the clearance becomes a challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and for clearance and half-life and everything, like the, getting something to the back of the eye, right, it's, it's, it's not a trivial um, activity. The drops that work 
well in glaucoma, right? They work in the anterior chamber. It feels like the, the retina is, is miles from there. And when we think about developing therapies for the retina, the small molecules are, you'd love to come from the systemic side, right? But you also have the bears of the, of the outer retina as well from the RPE and whatever else. And then it's systemic exposure, systemic viability. Maybe the, the gastro <laughs> talks did have something to, to in, inform us about in terms of getting a steady state of drug, but you still have to get it to the eye and, and show that it's in the eye and show that it's in the eye at an effective concentration and, and on from there. So I think that the depots uh, maybe do hold the most promise in terms of both maintaining an effective level of drug for a long enough time. So, you know, I think we clearly articulated what the challenges are for the small molecule and biologics are emerging and I think there are more successes recently with biologics. So I would like to ask each one of you, what do you see are the major challenges in terms of biologics for back of the eye? obviously formulation, manufacturing, but also more from a delivery perspective. And so I think one thing to sort of keep in mind is there's always this need to try to reduce the frequency of injection, and that's really to reduce the burden of treatment upon people. So in terms of how do you go about trying to keep something longer in the back of the eye? So I think, Alex and Sarv, you guys both talked about it. Can you give more? So by, by giving more dosing, do the fact that there's a limited amount of volume you can introduced into the vitreous space. But one thing you might want to mention what's the volume. Oh yeah, so typically um, you're looking at 50 to 100 microliters type of injection volume into the back of the eye. And then when you sort of think about that, then people start thinking, okay, I want to increase dose, what can I do? I can increase the concentration of the protein, but come, but there are consequences to that. One, um, proteins tend to aggregate at high concentration, so there's stability issues to address. And then there's also the question of, as you go higher in concentration, you have higher viscosity, so you're dealing with that injection force. So really, how do you have to sort of manage all of that. And there are some examples, I think, um, Saurabh, you can probably comment on the ILEA eight milligram dosing that allows us to go from dosing um, bi-monthly to dosing eight to 12 weeks after, a three after three monthly injections. Yeah, I think you're touching on something very important. I think with, with biologics, uh, you know, with, with, again, limitations on volume, um, you can only go so much higher in concentration. Another thing we need to remember is the, um, the, the flexibility in terms of formulation composition and um, the number of different types of excipients that we can or cannot use in the eye. The, the, the amount of experience is limited. Um, and you, you really, if you're gonna pick anything off, of, off the shelf, it, this, this may not have ever been used um, in the eye before, right? So there is a higher burden there um, where you will have to, to show tolerability uh, if you're going to use any viscosity-reducing excipients, for example. Um, the other thing is, uh, again, this is a big topic. I think uh, Jay, we're probably going to have to talk a little bit about this. Is uh, you know that's that's the title of this session too, which is the accuracy of a sort of small volume injections um, and repeatability, which is the around the precision. It becomes more and more challenging if you have a viscous uh, product now. And one small um, component of this small volume is is um, delivery in, in small. Um, eyes, which is, uh, you know, as kids and infants, right? I think you might have seen some research recently in the last few years on the ROP, which is the retinopathy of prematurity. Um, and, and there, the dose volume could be, uh, you know, 10 microliters or less. 
And how, how are you going to deliver that um, with a higher viscosity product? Um, yeah, so I think that those are some of the, the challenges, um, including stability and, and also accuracy uh, that you can deliver. Um, but yeah, I think we can, we can maybe talk more later in the conversation about what are the options there. And, and just looking at the preclinical development space, uh, excipients is a huge one, right? It's like our, our CMC people go, oh, we're just going to dissolve it. And it's like, whoa, whoa, don't put that in the eye type of thing. So you have to de design early for those types of ophthalmic considerations. But also things around tolerability, like the best biologics in the eye um, are the most kind of humanistic or native. Like as, as we've tried to introduce more synthetics, um, run into some problems, most recently uh, liberalicizumab molecule, um, maybe being immunogenic. So it's, it's trying to understand and balance the, the kind of the native con constructs, the native biologics, or the most humanized biologics against the other like very cool and interesting things you can do with synthetic platforms, single chain fragments, whatever it might be, um, DARPAs, you name it. Like, but maybe those um, run into some real tolerability issues. So it's another thing to to consider as, as sexy a molecule as you could make and as potent and as, as target engaging as it could be. There are these other things to consider. Yeah, just, just one a quick comment yeah. to that is, you know, it's just the, the myth around um, the eye being immune privileged. I think we have to uh, be cautious before we say that. I think, with, you know, uh, that does not mean, you know, we can inject anything sexy like you were talking about, or, or sort of exotic excipients, for example. I think it has to be built into the design, and we, again, you know, we should not uh, talk about immune privilege. It doesn't apply, uh, you know. Right, right. So one of the aspects of it is that in AMD wet form, essentially your leaky blood vasculature, so you are having access to the systemic circulation, so you're going to have immune response, right? The one aspect which actually I, I didn't think about it before, but I think uh, as for biologics, you want to increase the dose to give a longer duration, but then the viscosity goes up. But, you know, think about injecting something to a 26 or 28-gauge needle, so I think you have this opposing issues, right? You can't use a very invasive form of delivery, but then you want to inject as much biologics. So... Uh, I am familiar with the port delivery system, and I think for our audience, it might be good if you can kind of explain what that delivery system is for biologics and what are the challenges, and what's the benefit? No, so, um, yeah, I was going to say, in addition to looking at it from a, increasing the dose for a solution, you can look at different novel um, devices. I think the port system, which is of Suvizumo, which was um, developed by Genentech, it launched in 2021. What's really unique about this system is it's... Um, it's an ocular implant that can be refillable that allows continuous delivery of ranizuzumab, which is basically Lucentis. And I think when you think about it is, um, in terms of the challenges, based on what I've learned in the literature, is that you're really thinking about how do you actually keep a drug stable at 37 degrees for long periods of time. The dose, the concentration of ranibizumab is 100 mg per ml, so that in itself is um, something that you have to address. And the second point is just really from a design perspective. You're looking at the way they've designed it is you actually have this extracellular type of flange that can then be um, implanted into the, um, the sclera without actually using suture. So you actually have this anchor flange, which is actually really novel. 
And then there's the elements about the ability to refill it. So they actually did a lot of work on the needle design to be able to achieve that exchange. And, but in terms of, because it is complex, I mean, there are definitely manufacturer um, hurdles. I think from my understandings, it was um, the development pathway to approval. It started in 2009 and it launched in 2021. And then I think, as some of you guys are aware, there was a voluntary recall from Genentech in 2022, about a year ago. And this was related to, um, from, from what my understanding is from the seal, which is the septum for the refillable portion of it. So it's really, when you start thinking about all of these systems that allows you to get longer um, duration, you're dealing with increased manufacturer complexity, you're dealing with longer timelines, et cetera. I think maybe I'll add to a, maybe a different element of that conversation, right? I think um, maybe a few months ago, I think it was probably last year, FDA has uh, issued a revised guidance um, around sort of treatment of um, some of the combination product-related um, guidance uh, to bring it into um, development for, for ophthalmics, right? And I think maybe people should go and read that. Um, I think for a while when we were looking at prefilled syringes, for example, uh, or maybe an assisted um, component there, uh, that could have been treated as an ophthalmic dispenser and maybe not have to go through all the design control elements when we're doing combination product development. But I think um, as I, I read through that guidance, I think um, quite a bit of what we're doing would come under there. So I think what you're saying, all, all the sort of the, the design-associated risk assessments have to be completed. Um, a lot of the similar type of work that we, we do to enable a combination product will have to be done. So I think we should all maybe pay attention to what's happening in that space too. Yeah, and the, what the port had shown uh, from, a, from a kinetic standpoint and all of the human and preclinical data, it's, in, it's really incredible what they accomplished, the six-month steady release duration, therapeutic levels of drug. Um, but it's, yeah, in, in turning, in really dialing up the complexity of a device uh, with the therapeutic, they, they did hit those problems, and it did take them 12-plus years. So it's an incredible accomplishment and an incredible amount of work, uh, but it, it still shows us how to try to try to build in those things, like understanding your, your molecule stability as early as possible or, or understanding the manufacturing process of, of any of these combinations. And yes, the pre-filled syringes are subject to quite a bit of, of scrutiny as well, and, and that takes significant amounts of time. <clears throat> so I want to kind of a little bit switch gear and think about, so we have quite a journey, small molecule, very fast clearance, uh, all different delivery systems tried, but implant is probably the only approach which gives a longer duration for small molecule. For biologics, there are challenges, but you have the port delivery system, which, which is very promising, and actually you can deliver biologics for a long duration, and you can actually switch out. You can put different drugs into the port delivery system. But still, you require an invasive injection or some sort of a minor surgical operation would it be not nice to just have a single injection which treats the disease? So are we there with either cell therapy or gene therapy? And I would like to ask each of the panelists to comment on what do they see the promise for cell and gene therapy for back of the eye diseases? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of interest and there's a lot of clinical studies that are ongoing in terms of looking at gene therapy. Are we there yet? We're not there yet, but I think um, there's definitely a promise in terms of using this as a means of enabling to have a single type of injection. 
we let you go first. Oh, sure. <laughs> so, yeah, so from a development standpoint, um, I think Regenix Bio is, is knocking on the door. You know, Ed Verum hit some, some speed bumps. It just seems like, as a neural tissue, like, it's just like, what a target, right, for, for an AED or a capsule or some kind of delivery. And I, I, yeah, I, I think it is um, an incredible place to approach that um, for, as a neural tissue. But yeah, I think it becomes a risk benefit question for any given patient, right? Can you, you can come back every three months, and you, we know the, it's a really well characterized you know, intravitreal injection, and you, you maintain your vision for as long as you do versus this, this one and done. And what you're really solving for, I think, is the, the duration of the effect, right? It's, it's one. Um, and I think an intravitreal gene therapy is infinitely more appealing than a subretinal gene therapy. It becomes a matter of the delivery itself, the vector itself. Can you reach the back of the eye? Can you reach therapeutic levels of transfection? So not quite, but there's just so much, there's so much cool stuff being done in this space. Even from a, from a supracroidal injection, you go, go with the virus right to the back of the eye, or you can hit most of the RPE or, or the photoreceptors or whatever it might be. So it's, it's, just, it's just an awesome space, I think, to keep a watch on. Yeah, just a quick comment that I think it's, it's, you know, it is in the clinic right now, right? There's several clinical studies. I think I, you know, again, can't speak too much about it, but I think it's public knowledge. I think with, with Johnson & Johnson, a collaboration with Mira, I think uh, some good safety data was published last year, uh, ongoing trial for RPGR-mediated AV um, administration, and that's a subretinal. But again, like you said, Reginex Bio or, or Spark, I think it's, it's um, what going on. So I think in the next probably, I would say, two years or so, we should see efficacy data, right? And, and see if, if it becomes a reality or not. Yeah, that's going to change the the whole paradigm and maybe the vet AMD space. That sounds very exciting and promising. One, one injection <laughs> treats the diseases. Yeah, and I... I I, I deal so much with AMD, GA, you know, this highly prevalent, highly common disease, chronic, slow progressing. But the, yeah, there's the potential to be a curative in a space. The spark you mentioned, uh, the RPE65 therapy. Um, it becomes then, I think, a matter of, of, of showing that efficacy um, and then making it accessible, right? It's a $400,000 an eye, I think it is. So it's, okay, we need to figure out how to, how to <laughs> make that more accessible to people, even if it is a curative therapy, right? So what I would like to do is kind of open up the uh, forum for uh, audience to ask questions of the panelists. Uh, feel free to come up to the mic. I, I think there are mics in the center. And then at the end, I would like the panelists to kind of talk about what do they think is the next big exciting thing in the uh, ocular drug delivery space? Uh, Having worked at Genentech during the time of the development of the uh, port delivery system, know it very well. The other issue that we find with trying to do uh, control release uh, type or sustained release systems for ophthalmic is biocompatibility. And, and you touched on it a little bit. This is a huge issue. So when you're even talking about the stability of the protein itself, we were very lucky with ranibizumab. Not many things could do that for that duration. In fact, it's very few. 
So there's a challenge as well. So biocompatibility, you'll find a lot of delivery systems for the eye, and people will claim that they're biocompatible, but they turn actually not to be terribly biocompatible. Do you have anything to say more about that and also about anything that you can think of that would help with regard to the API? You can build a good delivery system, but if the protein itself or the therapeutic itself is not stable, you're out of luck. There's very few things you can tolerate. You touched on the excipients that would not be tolerated in the eye. No, correct. I think that's, that's spot on in terms of, at the end of the day, you can develop beautiful delivery systems. There are a lot of them out there. I think we've heard a few of them at today, at yesterday in today's talks. But really, it's inherent to the, the molecule itself is how stable it is. And I think you're right with regards to AN, with regards to ranibizumab is the perfect molecule in the sense that you have that inherent stability because how many biologics out there are you aware of? especially in the size of like a monoclonal antibody, a fragmented antibody that can survive 37 degrees for months on end. And so I think that's gonna be the challenge is, do you have the, you have to mirror the API with the platform? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, the biggest thing is, are you asking the right questions when you're designing some of these compatibility and tolerability studies? Do you have the right model? Do you have the right design? How far out do those studies go? How frequently are you looking at things, right? And what are the markers that you're looking at? I think it's, sometimes it's obvious, right, with some of these delivery systems, if you have um, polymeric systems or, again, unique excipients, it may not be the drug. It might be one of those excipients or how it is degrading or how it's sort of, you know, residual components in the eye. Um, so how deep are you looking at it uh, from, a, from a tolerability study standpoint? Did you select the right model, um, like I said? So I think in the duration of the study, et cetera, and, and the, the frequency of sampling, um, again, huge challenges, right? There's a, if you look at a, a rat model, for example, or a guinea pig, uh, there's not enough to sample there. Like, how many times can you sample? Uh, and then there are challenges from a method development standpoint. Like, do you have the right method with that tiny volume? Can you, can you look at uh, inflammatory components, for example? So I think it, a lot depends on how you develop your, your um, uh, compatibility uh, program. Yeah. yeah, and that's so much of what we, we deal with now is you can, like, would you take an API and try to fit it into this box of stability and sustain release and probably the right CMC? Or if you knew that's where you wanted to go, would you start designing the most thermostable, most tolerated thing you could think of. And, you know, if you were to start from scratch, I think that looks very different from a drug development standpoint. And then just around the translatability of these types of things, like how, and that's what we deal with so much now is from a model, model standpoint, is like, you know, six weeks in a rat, not enough, right? And then, but your primate study is, especially in the current environment, um, start to balloon and it's all of a sudden you're into a Two and a half million dollar study in the last six months. So it's finding thread that needle with so many of these things, um, and these are the challenges, right? So we are actively looking at you know in any and all ways to deliver uh, these therapeutics effectively. So. What I would like to do is have the panelists. Oh, oh there's is a question in the audience. Go ahead. Yes. Hello. Only one question. Gregoire Schwach from uh, Rivana. Yeah, I, I listened to the conversation, and for someone who is working in the field, it seems like, you know, I'm hearing things uh, more or less the same over years, besides the, the new modalities that are coming. But is the industry, and you are a panel really representing big pharma, right? 
Are you still looking into uh, innovating on formulation and drug delivery technologies for the eye? Because I always heard and learned that ophthalmology is a fascinating area because ophthalmology loves innovation. So are you really, have you given up or do you still believe it's possible to come up with a polymeric long-acting formulation, for example? I could speak for um, AbbVie. Yes, we're constantly looking for innovation. We're looking at new drug delivery systems. We're looking at new molecules. Um, so yes, constantly looking. Just to add to that, from a, just a pure solution composition, again, it's a yes. Yeah, we're constantly looking for those excipients that, that are safe in the eye, for example. Yeah, we talk a lot about the challenges because there are a lot of challenges, but there are a lot of interesting options as well. Um, you, yeah, you can't, can't give up. Never give up. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks, Pat. Everybody. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information about the Pod Conference editorial, podcasts, or webcasts, please visit podconference.com. Thanks for listening.